Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Tech optimists promise that true artificial intelligence is just around the corner. Then again, they've been promising that for a long time. So should we be skeptical of all the excitement surrounding so-called deep learning AI? Or are we on the cusp of a revolution in AI that will penetrate every aspect of American life? And if the AI revolution really is coming, should we fear mass unemployment or even worse dystopian scenarios from the pages of science fiction? To get a sense of the current landscape of AI research, I'm joined by Melanie Mitchell. Melanie is a Davis professor at the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit research center for complex system science. She's the author of six books, including her latest, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans, released in 2019. In 2021, Melanie authored Why AI is Harder Than We Think, which describes the fallacies that underlie overly optimistic AI predictions. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. At the beginning of your book, uh, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans, an excellent, excellent book, there's a portion where you you talk about sort of surveying, you know, the many opinions about sort of about the state of the technology. The the listeners love when I read, uh, so I will let me read just a small portion from your book. You write, in short, what I found is that the field of AI is in turmoil. Either a huge amount of progress has been made or almost none at all. Either we are within spitting distance of true AI or it is centuries away. AI will solve all our problems, put us all out of a job, destroy the human race, or cheapen our humanity. It's either a noble quest or summoning the demon. The book came out in 2019. Have we made any progress in figuring out which of those questions and the answers are most applicable? I would say we've made um, some narrow progress, but I think all of those questions are still wide open. So uh, the field moves very quickly in some ways, but in other ways it moves quite slowly on these bigger questions. And there, there are times where the sector seems to be moving very rapidly and there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of funding and then there's times where, where it doesn't. Um, because when I, when I really started paying attention to, to, to AI, uh, it was a lot about expert systems and, and neural networks. And now it's about something else. So first sort of, if you could just walk us briefly through, you know, which has been the, the kind of AI that's been in favor. And then today, when we talk about AI, usually what are we talking about? So if I read AI in the newspaper or the business section, what are we talking about versus maybe what we were talking about 20 years ago? Yeah, so the term AI um, has changed its meaning throughout its history. It started out very much um, trying to use logic and logic-like deductive inference as the way to um, model intelligence. So people figured out that they that computers could not just um, process numbers the way we normally think of them doing, but they could also process language and they could process uh, 
uh, proofs, like mathematical proof, deductive proofs. They could prove theorems and so on. And these, the, the, this has been these things like processing language, processing logic, logical structures has been called symbolic AI because it deals with symbols like words rather than numbers, you know, that are hard, harder to interpret. And symbolic AI was really the first big push in AI, trying to capture intelligence by explicitly programming logical abilities into machines. And that kind of failed for one reason is that it turned out that you couldn't just deduct everything about the world. We needed some kind of knowledge. You know, we humans have a lot of knowledge. And so that's when people started building these so-called expert systems where they would go out and interview experts in a field like, for instance, medical diagnosis or something try to get all the rules that this human expert used to, to perform uh, the task of diagnosis or whatever the task is, and then program those rules into a computer. So those are called expert systems. Those also failed to a large degree because it turns out that experts, a lot of the actual rules that they use or the knowledge that they use is not conscious they're using it unconsciously, a lot of their sort of so-called common sense. And they weren't able to express that to, in a way that could be um, sort of programmed into a computer. So if you went out and interviewed Warren Buffett, the investor, and you just sat with him for a few days, I'm sure you would capture a lot of very interesting, useful information. But you would then, but then if you program that, you wouldn't have uh, AI Warren Buffett, because it's likely that there are things that he does that he maybe doesn't even realize he's doing and connections can't perhaps obviously articulate that are fundamental to what he does. Exactly. That's exactly right. So this became a big problem for that whole thrust of AI. So this was kind of the, I'm talking about like the 1960s to the 1970s, 1980s, and then uh, neural networks which uh, simulated in a very rough sense, the way the brain works with simulated neurons and simulated connections between the neurons, those became popular. They had been, people had been working on them for a long time, but they became much more popular like in the later 1980s and 1990s. And these were systems that you didn't program. They learned from data, from being exposed to data, um, were process what they were processing was not symbols but numbers again. So this became uh, what was called at the time connectionist AI, and kind of morphed into a more general le machine learning approach, where you instead of programming intelligent behavior in, you let the machine itself learn from giving lots and lots of examples. So in your Warren Buffett analogy, instead of interviewing Warren Buffett and trying to figure out what rules he uses to do what he does, you would instead, you know, get a lot of big data about what, how Warren Buffett invests and how he, you know, um, moves money around and, and, and so on. And you try to have the machine figure out its own rules just by looking at that data. So that's machine learning. Uh, that has been quite limited too, until about, uh, the, the early 2010s, 
when this whole area called deep learning came about. And that's using a kind of neural network system that is much um, more complicated than anything people used in the 1980s and is learns from a huge amount of data that's now available to people because of the internet. And as we are able to process this using these extremely fast parallel um, hardware and um, that's really allowed the whole field of AI to kind of explode it with a lot of new applications and successes. Although, as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, that has its limitations too. So, so sort of the keys here, you know, sounds like a massive amount of data, far more data, uh, much uh, faster computing power, and then just, I imagine the, the programs themselves more sophisticated. That's correct, exactly. So again, so what I so generally when I hear people talk about um, AI, I'm uh, they're talking about machine learning and then a kind of machine learning called uh, deep learning. Right, that's kind of what it means now for the most part. Although that's very different, of course, for what it meant like in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, we've we've talked about these ups and downs, and people call them you know springs and winters. What is the season we're in right now? We're now in an AI spring. So the idea with that is, you know, it, ha it measures how optimistic people are, how much funding there is, how, how the predictions people are making about, you know, near-term uh, art artificial intelligent cars and robots and so on. Um, often these AI springs are followed by AI winters where the promises that people are making like you're gonna be, you don't have to get a driver's license anymore because you'll be driving around in a self-driving car. Um, those don't happen. The promises are not fulfilled, um, you know, and the um, funding dries up and people become disappointed and think, okay, AI doesn't work. And so we get these cycles where there's some new technology that people use uh, that has a lot of promise and people often overpromise its applications and there's a lot of optimism until suddenly people become disappointed and and uh, uh, we're down and, and then AI winter happens. So there's a lot of debate now of whether we're going to have an AI winter after this very exuberant AI spring. What makes people uh, exuberant? Is it sort of purely a technological exuberance? Is it merely sort of a, just a, you know, a fascinating scientific and technological advance or is it or is it how that could be translated into other new technologies or new jobs or other conveniences for our life, what have you? Yeah, I would say it's more the latter than the former. You know, there's not really a huge, any huge new scientific advance beyond this, what you said of just like huge amounts of data and fast computers and maybe more, more sophisticated uh, machine learning programs, but it's not that different technology than was used like, you know, 30 years ago. We just have more more data and fast faster computers, and but that enables these technologies to go from just academic exercises to being actually applied in the real world. And you could you see that all over the place. You know, we have facial recognition systems. We have uh, systems that can. We we do have self driving cars that that you know have their limitations, but um, they can recognize pedestrians and and they can figure out traffic lights and traffic uh, 
uh, traffic uh, signs and so on. Um, and all kinds of applications in, in terms of like machine translation, uh, AI applied in healthcare, being able to now like diagnose certain uh, diseases. You know, you just read about something new every day that AI is doing and that, in, in, that it's doing in the real world. So I think that's the real revolution. And if you had exposed someone in the late 90s to what AI can do today, would they have been disappointed or would they think, well, those are really great advances, things must have really progressed over the, over the subsequent 20 years? I think most people would have been very impressed and think that AI's made a ton of progress. But, you know, they'd also have to be made aware of some of the limitations of these systems, you know. One of the things that happens in these AI springs is that, you know, we get these systems that can do certain things, they're more successful than they were in the past, and then people start making predictions and saying like, well, 20 years from now, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have robot uh, house cleaners, and we're going to have, you know, AI systems that can um, function on their own and drive around and, you know, maybe even flying cars that can <laughs> fly around on their own. And they make these great predictions for near-term technolo- technological advances. And then it's the predictions that end up being a lot harder than it, the technology they promised turns out to be harder than people imagined. Okay, that's a fantastic segue to your paper, Why AI is Harder Than We Think, which is an excellent companion to your book. In that paper, you talk about the difficulty of common sense. First, how do you define common sense in these terms? And is common sense something we'll be able to instill in AI at some point? Yeah, so so common sense is this kind of umbrella term that means all of this background knowledge we have that we're barely aware of, of how things work in the world. So here, here's an example of a common sense failure um, <laughs> in AI. So one, uh, there was a self-driving car driving on the road and it kept slamming on the brakes and stopping at a certain point. And the human in the car couldn't figure out what was going on. Why was it stopping? And it turned out there was a billboard that was like an anti-drug billboard with a picture of a sheriff holding up a stop sign saying like, stop using drugs or something. And the car was interpreting that billboard as an actual stop sign and stopping. And no human would do that because no five-year-old would. Yeah, we know the difference between like real stop signs and billboards and we can interpret these different things about the world. But, you know, and this is kind of uh, it's an unusual case. People call these uh, unusual situations edge cases. They're, They're the things that maybe aren't in the training examples that this car was trained on. Um because you don't encounter something like that that often. But if you think about all the possible edge cases and all the possible cars, there's just, it's just unlimited. And we deal with this kind of thing all the time by having, by using our common sense, if you will. And so the question is, how do we get common sense into computers? And that's this, this one of the very earliest papers published in AI, like I forgot exactly when, but, um, in the 1960s, maybe uh, by John McCarthy, was on how to give computers common sense, and his his solution was, you know, a very logic-based approach. 
And over the years, many, many people have worked on this problem of common sense. Some people by trying to build these giant database bases of common sense knowledge, trying to kind of an expert system of common sense where humans type in uh, statements like, you can't be in two places at once. Or, you know, if you uh, walk somewhere, you know, your body moves from one place to another. Just the very basic things that are never written down, but just everybody knows. It's still, I think, the biggest open problem in AI is how do we give the machines the kind of this kind of common sense that we have to deal with the world? And no one solved it. In Why AI is Harder Than We Think, you address four fallacies that can make AI seem easier than it really is. One of those fallacies is easy things are easy and hard things are hard. What do you mean by that? Right. So, so there's th certain tasks that we humans think of as very hard and like take a lot of intelligence. And one, one example might be playing chess against at a grandmaster level. You know, we, we deify these chess players who can uh, play chess. And we think of, think of that as inquiring a huge amount of intelligence. And yet it turns out that chess, the game chess is much easier for computers than a game like tag <laughs> that you might play on a playground. Because, uh, you know, computers, robots have trouble navigating. They have trouble often tracking where people are. They, they have trouble predicting their movements and so on. So, you know, the easiest game for a four-year-old child turns out to be much harder than the hardest game for a human. So this is this idea of that. Things that are easy for us often are hard for computers. And so if a computer does something that's really hard for us, we assume it's going to be able to do all the things that are easy for us, but that's actually not the case at all. Another fallacy you address in the paper is the allure of wishful mnemonics. This one really struck me because it seems scientists, in order to explain complicated concepts to non-experts, use terms like learning that we all think we know. But an average person doesn't understand learning in the same way a computer scientist might. Right. We say machine learning. And so we assume that often using that term learning, we anthropomorphize it and say yes. it's similar to human learning. And yet it's really different from human learning. Because for one thing, if you assume like a child learns something, then you assume they'll be able to apply that knowledge in other contexts than where, where they learned it. You know, if they've only seen dogs outside and they learn what a dog is, they can still recognize a dog when it's inside. This is not necessarily the case for machine learning. So um, th this, th th this is one example of a wishful mnemonic where uh, it's just a term that we use to describe something in machine intelligence that also applies to human intelligence. And we give it kind of assume that the meaning carries over from one to the other. Another example is neural networks. You know, we talk about neural networks as being like the brain. They're actually quite different from the brain, but that term neural uh, sometimes gives people the impression that they're more like the brain than they are. I mean, when you say neural network, that's what I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking of uh, like a brain made out of fiber optic cable. Right. And the final fallacy, which is intelligence is all in the brain. What does that mean? Why is that a fallacy? It's hard to understand. It's controversial. So, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence. And when you think of artificial intelligence, you often think of like, oh, the computer on your desktop is might be thinking, right? It's 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 reasoning, it's it's trying to solve problems and so on. So 
we assume like we could possibly take a brain, put it in some kind of vat away from the body and it would still be able to think. Well, there's been a lot of people in cognitive science that say that's just the wrong way to think about intelligence. That intelligence is not just in the brain. It's also how the brain and the body interact with the world together. That a lot of the things that we think about, we can only think about because of the kinds of physical experiences that we have in the world with our bodies, that we're embodied. Uh, our intelligence is embodied. Now, not everybody agrees with this view, and there's a big kind of debate in cognitive science about how much you can separate intelligence from the rest of the body. I think that if, if we assume that, that intelligence is all in the brain, we don't have to worry about anything else about the body or social interactions or emotions and other kinds of things we don't necessarily associate with intelligence, but probably are, we overestimate how fast we're going to be able to achieve like artificial intelligence. So those are some fallacies. And in the book, paper and the book, you get into a lot of sort of the remaining big open questions. And, and certainly I think reading the book and the paper, it seems like we're still very far from human-like artificial intelligence. Well, this gets back to the, the passage you read at the very beginning in the book where I say, you know, we're either spitting distance away or we've made no progress at all. And what I meant by that is, you know, these are two different views in the field of actual practitioners in AI who say, you know, some of them believe that we're very close to getting the breakthrough that will give us human level robots. And some people think we're, you know, centuries away, if not, you know, it never will happen. And so there's that kind of divergence of views. So really nobody, nobody can say for sure. We just don't understand in some sense what we're aiming for. The, the what intelligence is, is the real problem. And I think nobody really knows. So we have a science of artificial intelligence, and yet we don't understand what intelligence is. So the people who are very optimistic, maybe, you know, far more optimistic uh, uh, than you might be, with that optimism, does, does there also naturally come fear? That you're, if you're optimistic about where the technology is, then you're also fearful that the technology could somehow get away from us or eliminate all the jobs or whatever scenario does the optimism is the super optimism go hand in hand with concerns yeah so i would say that there are some people who are very optimistic of that i mean in the sense that they believe that ai is we're, we're on the brink of creating uh true ai in some sense uh and a, a lot of people who believe that are also worried about ai systems not having the same values as we do. And they talk about alignment of value, our values with AI's values with us. Uh, so there's a co-group called the AI alignment movement. Um, there's also people who, who are like me, not as, not as sanguine that we're going to get to, you know, full artificial intelligence anytime soon, and yet still fear some of the current issues in AI that come up like bias in these machine learning systems. And the fact that some of the uh, systems that are being granted autonomy really aren't smart enough to have that kind of autonomy. 
So sort of the opposite of the alignment people. It's not that they're too smart. Um, it's that they're not smart enough. Can I be excited about uh, the science and how it can help people, even if I think we're not going to get to some sort of human-like, much less superhuman-like artificial intelligence this century? Can it still have a, a enough of a positive impact to think that this is an, uh, an extremely important and, if used the right way, potentially extremely beneficial technology? Oh, yeah, I think it's it has the potential to be extremely beneficial. I mean, we already see some of the benefits of AI. For instance, just recently, um, the company DeepMind, part of Google, um, was able to uh, train a system that was able to predict protein structure better than anything that had come before. So predicting protein structure is like the first step in being able to design drugs for new drugs for diseases and, and being able to do a lot of good in, in, in healthcare. And also just in understanding the science. Um, I think AI will rev eventually revolutionize healthcare, especially, you know, you think of a lot of people who are unable to uh, obtain healthcare or good healthcare. They don't live in certain areas where they can't obtain it. I think AI could have a huge impact on that. I think also AI could have um, a lot of very positive impact on automating some extremely, you know, some of the more dangerous jobs that people really shouldn't be doing. And very more, more sort of uh, intellectually helping us understand our own intelligence better and maybe understand our own biases and our own sort of, you know, cognitive, the cognitive traps we fall into. So helping us think better. And since uh, I work for a think tank, I always like to ask one policy question. You can give me your best answer or no answer. You have, like, what do you want from government to do to help? Is there, do you want them to help in some way, get out of the way in some way? Uh, any thoughts on that? I think a lot of AI policy, if there is any, <laughs> has been left to big companies. So big tech companies have decided, you know, which applications to deploy and have been tasked with making sure that they're safe and, and you know, have the properties that we would want them to have. And they haven't really stepped up to the plate on doing that. So I do feel like there's some kind of role for government in regulating AI in a similar way that it regulates, say, um, genetic engineering or other kinds of biotechnology that, um, we, we, you know, we don't want to shut down research because it can have a lot of benefits, even though it can have a lot of downsides too, but we do need something outside of our kind of uh, corporate structures to create regulations that will keep, that will kind of keep the research on a beneficial rather than harmful track. Melanie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. I enjoyed it. 